It takes a village to raise a child. We all know that, right? But what happens if you can't find your village? Because raising your child is really, really tough. What if you are so filled with shame and doubt and guilt and fear of judgment that you don't share your triumphs and your struggles? You don't talk about it because you don't think anyone can possibly relate. Well, I've been there, and it was really hard for me to find my tribe. So I decided to make mine. I went out and found these amazing mothers who are also in the trenches, struggling to raise their kids. Together, we are a community. And in this podcast on the hard days, you'll find motivating stories from other real moms who get it. We're going to accept who we are and how we show up for our children each and every day, even on the hard days. Hey guys, have you signed up for my weekly newsletter, Mothers Together? I'm hopeful that you have because this newsletter is so fun. First, I have a Mom of the Week feature, which if you didn't already catch it, these Moms of the Week are just regular moms like you and I who are listening to this podcast, who are followers of this community, and they want to find their people. If you send me a picture and a little bio about yourself, I'll feature you in our Mothers of the Week column, and moms can contact you and make instant friends based on the fact that we are all raising these out-of-the-box kids. And another feature in my newsletter is a recap of the week's podcast episode, as well as resources, because we all need those, and it's so helpful to just have more information. You really can never have too much when you're trying to raise the kids like we have. And so every week I will put in a resource or two, whether a book or a podcast or a blog or whatever, for you to check out. So if you haven't signed up for this newsletter yet, head to my website, ontheharddays.com, and enter your email address. You'll be getting this newsletter every Friday. And as always, thank you so much for your endless support. And now, on to the episode. Welcome. I have with me an amazing twin mom who is also a hand-in-hand instructor. She's going to talk about what that is. Um, for those of you who don't know, which I did not know, and really found those the tips that she explains very beneficial to raising an out-of-the-box child. So this is Kelly Funroyan, and welcome, Kelly. I am so glad that you're here with us today. Thanks, Megan. It's really, really good to be with you. So- and yeah, chat yeah. Let's this. start from the beginning. <laughs> you have twins, like we said, but back us up and and tell us about your journey to have your twins and your beginning story. Sure. Um, my husband and I uh, got married and started a family. We decided about six months later we were ready, and we're very lucky and fell pregnant straight away, and we're very excited. But unfortunately lost that pregnancy or lost the baby. Um, It was a fairly early term pregnancy, but it was still hard. From there, you know, you you grieve and you you kind of not move on, but try and piece yourself together again. After something that's quite trivialized, um, I found, you know, you get some insensitive comments and, oh, you know, your body doing its job and there would have been something wrong with the baby and, you know, those sorts of things. And then fell pregnant again, not long afterwards. I think it was about two months later, I was pregnant again. And 
it was different from the get-go. I was so sick. And I know they say, don't try and do a pregnancy test until you know you've missed your period. And, and I think it was like four days before my period was even due. And I did one and already it was a positive. And oh. so from there, I was, I was like, I'm having twins. There are two babies in there. I'm convinced, I'm convinced. And my husband, we went to our first appointment and my husband said to the gynecologist, my wife is convinced that there's more than one baby in there. Please, can you just tell us this only one? <laughs> <laughs> and so we went in and he did the scan and he turned the machine on and he said, how many do you see? And they, they, they were on both on the screen with these little flickering heartbeats and it looked like a panda bear's face. And obviously we were over the moon. Um, that kind of fear of twins disappeared and we were so happy. And I had a really good pregnancy. I'm trying to think back, except for being very sick until 13 weeks. But after that, it was really good. And then at 28 weeks, I got some contractions and I went in and they, and they said, you know, you, your cervix is thinning a bit. So they gave me, luckily, the steroid shots for their lungs. Mm and progesterone and bed rest so they said go home and you know stay in bed and then my waters broke not long after that so just just over 30 weeks my one boy <laughs> busters busters amniotic sac <laughs> he was like I'm done with this this cramped space let me out and I went I went back to the hospital and I wasn't in labor luckily it was just ruptured ruptured membranes and they put me on bed rest and then I lasted four days before I went into labor and an emergency C-section later. And my boys were here at 31 weeks on the dot. And it was obviously, I think it was quite a gradual process to their birth in terms of that kind of fear at 28 weeks, then relief and then fear my waters broke. And then you're in the hospital and you start feeling a little, well, you know, for me, I know it's different for everyone, but I started feeling a little bit safe and you've got a lot of support and, you get explained all the worst case scenarios when you have premature babies. And I remember them telling me, the pediatrician said, you know, don't expect to hear them cry. They're still very little, their lungs aren't properly developed. But both boys they took out and they were screaming. And I remember being so happy. Then they obviously, you know, whisked away. My husband got to go with them to the NICU and I met, I only got to meet them. They were born at just after two in the morning and I met them at eight o'clock that night. So it was a long wait. Wow. I had to wait for my legs to work. And yeah, we, in terms of NICU journeys, we had a really good one. They were what they call feeders and growers. And we didn't have any bumps in the road. They latched very early. They picked up breastfeeding really well. They didn't get any infections. They came off oxygen. They were only on oxygen for a day. And then they came home at 35 weeks gestation <laughs> and sent home with a, a two kilo and a 1.8 kilo baby. And I was completely overconfident because I got lulled into this false sense of confidence in the NICU. You get taught, this is how you hold the baby. This is how you bath the baby. This is how you feed the baby. And there's, there's a nurse at your beck and call constantly. So if they don't have a good feed, you're like, oh, I think he needs a top up and you know that he's got a full tummy and then there's no, you know, and then, and then, then I got home and the first two days were okay. And I remember waking up on day three and it's as if somebody had put a vacuum cleaner into my mouth in the night and just completely sucked out my, I, I, my emotions. I was completely detached. Um, it was this a mixture between fear, dread and detachment. 
it was absolutely awful. I'm someone who I, I'm very lucky to say I've never, up until then, never su suffered with anxiety or depression or any kind of, you know, chronic negative feeling. And, you know, looking back now, I had severe postpartum depression and like a dissociation disorder almost. Uh, the whole NICU stay, you know, you get, I got told, you're so lucky. Uh, you must be so grateful. They're so healthy. You must be so grateful they're not getting infections. And so I'm, you know, I'm so grateful. I'm so lucky. They're so healthy. What do I have to be upset about? What do I have to feel traumatized about? What do I have to feel sad about? And, and not long after they came home from hospital, we actually moved across the country, moved away from my family, which was huge for me because I lived in the same town pretty much my whole life. And yeah, I, I just kind of shrunk into myself and my anxiety manifested itself in terms of sleep schedules. <laughs> oh, yes. Everyone, oh, everyone tells you, you know, twins need to be on a schedule. Otherwise, you're not going to have any time for yourself. So my poor babies, oh, they, you know, I would wake them up at the same time. And knowing them now, the one guy needs more sleep than the other. They, he, he just does. And here I am, like, forcing him to wake up with his brother so that they can feed at the same time and drink the same amount so that they go back to sleep at the same time. And the anxiety around that was probably the hardest thing I've been through as a parent. It's just that constant, like, you're constantly thinking about the next nap. You're dreading the night ahead because you know that they're going to wake up. And it's oh, I found that my anxiety decreased as the number of naps in a day decreased. When they were on one nap, I was kind of like, oh, is this, is this me? I'm starting to, you know, feel like myself again. And I was a Montessori teacher before becoming a mom. And the school that we taught at, we, got, we did a lot of workshops and positive discipline and how to speak to children. And I was passionate about it. And I knew that I was going to do that as a parent. I was going to uh, be a gentle parent, a positive parent, a conscious parent, and I had all the tools. And so they got to whatever it was, a year where discipline starts becoming something you need to think about, you know, don't touch that, don't do this, that sort of thing. And I was using the tools, but I was emotionally burning myself out. I was make, you know, holding the space for my children who we're still carrying trauma from their birth and, and their NICU stay and had a lot to be upset about. They were colicky babies. They had reflux. Um, they cried a lot, a lot, a lot. They, they didn't want to go to other people other than, you know, immediate family. So it was a lot. And now I'm starting to, you know, use positive discipline and I was finding it exhausting. And I was like, yeah, just completely at my wit's end. And I remember being in a bookshop and it's all I came across hand in hand parenting through a book called Tears Heal. I'm trying to remember the author's name. I think it's Kate Orson. But I I read this book and I remember hearing something about it that was quite controversial because she was saying it's good for children to cry. And you know, your mind automatically jumps to cry it out and like let them and I and I saw the cover and I was like, but that picture doesn't really resonate with that sort of mindset. So I picked it up and I took a look and it was all about basically in a nutshell how we need to respect our children's emotions and that crying is a healing process 
when handled correctly. And she, she mentioned hand-in-hand parenting throughout the book. So I looked up hand-in-hand parenting and I read a few of their articles and it just resonated so strongly with me that I immediately applied to do their parent course. And the parent course is a six-week course. I was partnered up with also a, a US-based instructor who took my group and you get videos to watch and materials to read and once a week there's a support group meeting and that's where you learn the tools and it just transformed not just parenting but myself because you get such a good understanding of yourself and and you realize that you know as your children grow up and go through different stages they trigger different things in you and we as human beings all carry so many unhealed hurts from our own childhood. And so these triggers come up and you, and you don't, you know, I remember when I was teaching, I had endless patience. I could listen to a child tantrum all day. I could, you know, be so patient with a child, just they could be swearing at me and I would be like, oh, you know what, it's okay. And so I thought like, if I can handle 24 children, two should be a cinch, <laughs> but I was getting so triggered and I just so angry and I would flip, you know, I never took it out on them, but it ate me up inside that guilt and rage. And especially at night, I remember them, they would wake up in the night and it's like a, like a black cloud would just engulf my body. And I'd go through there just, you know, filled with rage. Like, how dare you wake me up? I'm trying to sleep. And if it wasn't a good reason, you know, if when they were still little and they needed feeding, that was different. But once they're at that point that, you know, all the sleep experts, I'm using inverted commas here, all the sleep experts say, you know, at this age, they should be sleeping through the night, which is completely inaccurate. But so that's the expectation I had. And I was so angry that my children were not complying. And then I would feel so guilty about feeling the rage. So I'd get angry and I'd never do anything to them or, or, or take it out on them in any way. But just knowing that I felt that angry towards these two tiny babies, I would get back into bed and be like, oh, you're a horrible person. How could you feel that towards your own children? And I, then I would lie awake for another hour, just consumed in guilt. And that was actually the worst part. They would be awake for like five, 10 minutes, but I'd lie awake for an hour, an hour and a half. Yep. because of all the guilt that uh, it was just awful and so I started using the tools and listening partnerships especially and unpacking my own stuff and I worked a bit on the way I felt at night when they woke me up and and the feelings and trying to get to the bottom of the feelings and I dealt with a bit of it you know I, I cried a lot I I, I raged a lot I'll explain what a listening partnership is now this must sound quite strange no no but um okay (laughs) and then I remember chatting to my mom and I and I kind of said you know this is how I'm feeling at night and we chatted about it she said well you know when you were a baby when I brought you home everyone told me to let you cry and she told me how I think it was one or two nights that she did this cried out where the one night apparently I cried for an hour or something and eventually she's like I can't do this and she picked me up and was like that's it I'm not doing it again but understanding that I went through that as a baby and that is now sitting in my limbic system I understand why my children trigger me at night and after she told me that 
I took it to a listening partnership. I spoke about it and I cried. I cried for myself, but I cried mostly for my mom, for someone who's bringing home this little baby and having to sit there and listen to your baby scream. Can like, I've never tried cry it out, but I can't imagine how that must feel. And I was just felt so sad for my mom and dealing with that, that nighttime rage was gone. And now my kids would wake up in the night and I would enjoy cuddling them. I'd be like, oh, yes. And the other interesting thing was I was told never to feed them to sleep because obviously bad habits and that whole spiel. So I didn't. If they woke up in the night after whatever it was, six months, that it was appropriate not to feed them to sleep anymore. Um, it would be patting the bum and dummies and shushing and rocking and all that sort of thing. And something just felt off. My, my instinct was like, just feed him. But I was like, no. After I dealt with that kind of understanding where my rage came from, understanding that I was a cried out baby and my mom had gone through it, we went away and they were 18 months old at this stage. And we were on a houseboat. <laughs> so there were eight people on this boat and my children went through that 18 month sleep progression where they wake up, starting to wake up again. And all I could do was feed them to sleep. And I was almost like, oh, I've got an excuse to do this now because I can't wake everyone up. And I would just lie there with them and cuddle them. And then I came home and I decided to just carry on doing that. And I loved it. And I remember going through, and then they started waking up less because they were like, oh, mom's not coming in with this weird vibe that makes us feel unsafe. We can go back to sleep now because we're not dysregulated anymore. Mm. Um, so I would go through and feed them and love it. And they'd fall asleep in two minutes. And then they stopped waking up in the night. Um, so it was that trusting my instinct. They can sense that. You know, they, I feel like, they picked up that I finally was doing what we needed to do as a, you know, as a partnership, me and each of them. And so, yeah, that, that, that rage guilt spiral slowly came to an end because I was well-informed now. I'd read more about what sleep is, what sleep looks like for a child. It's not going to sleep at six o'clock and waking up at six o'clock and you know, these biological norms of feeding your child to sleep and holding your child when they need you are absolutely fine. Yes. And so there was, there was that relief that I could, you know, love them through it all. Yes. Like I got given permission. Yes. Wow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, so many things in your story resonate with me. Obviously I have twins as well had an emergency c-section we made it to I was on bed rest in the hospital for a month and so we did make it to just about 35 which I was grateful for but my daughter did have NICU time and I came home with my son and left my daughter there and it was wow. unpleasant they were also feeders and growers just you know they didn't have any complications and they they went to a uh, Montessori preschool which I absolutely loved and that was the model of Montessori, I mean, this is another conversation too, but Montessori is really outstanding. And I just wish it was more accessible and more affordable, at least in the States here. Uh, you know, the model for it is just outstanding. So I loved Montessori. You know, I have to, of course, touch base about the rage guilt spiral, because that is mm. 
among everything else that's ever happened in my parenting, it's the rage guilt spiral that has caused me to feel depressed, that has caused me to close myself in and to stop yes. stop talking to other people. It's because I yes. used to lose my cool at my children, mostly my son, actually my daughter too. And the, you know, I would absolutely rage. And then the guilt that followed was deep, deep guilt. It was, mm-hmm. it was at my core. And I also was obsessed with twin schedules and sleep. So I absolutely remember those days of not knowing what to do. Yep. You're supposed to have them on a schedule. Well, my daughter was a pound and a half um, smaller than my son. So he needed more food. And, you know, I did try to match them up and we did do the schedule. I wish looking back that I had gone about that differently. And I have to say, we did cry it out. And I was so exhausted after months of taking care of newborn twins and I'm reading all the things, right. And all the articles and everything on the internet says, says to do this. I mean, there's really, it seemed Mm -hmm. like there was two camps. It was cry it out or the exact opposite, which sounded like bring them into your bed and stay up all night, which I wasn't comfortable doing afraid I would roll over on two babies in my bed. And so we did cry it out. And for my son, it actually, he didn't, it was not a big deal for him, Um, but for my daughter, it was. And I remember Mm -hmm. the guilt. I remember reading, leave the house when you first do it. So you don't have to hear the crying because yeah, when you think back about it now, and I'm not, believe me for listeners with young kids, I am not, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying that didn't fit me and I did it anyway. And Mm -hmm. I have to say it worked air quotes because yes, my daughter learned to sleep without me. It was a cry it out. You know, I didn't, there's a way, you know, it's like a modified cry it out. It's not like I just went one night and just let her scream for hours, but I would go in after 10 minutes, but not pick her up, you know, don't pick her up. Don't talk too much because that's going to stimulate them. Just do a little shushing and then you leave and then you come back. And, and it, I sat on the couch. I think I was, um, stress eating ice cream and just sitting there feeling so much anxiety over it. Now they're almost eight. Now <laughs> they sleep really well. <laughs> I have to admit I have great sleepers Me and too, actually. well, that's see, and that there it is. And there it is. And so and it, you yeah, speaking about, I did that same modified sleep training. They call it gentle sleep training here yeah. where they, they only have to cry for three minutes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but those three minutes feel like three hours. So yeah, we did, we did do that at a stage. We did. Okay. Um, yeah. And you know, for, for people listening, I think it's very easy for people to make you to, to feel like people, are, people are shaming people who choose to do this. But a lot of people who are educated on this have actually done it themselves. Um, very few have actually gone through parenting with the and done it exactly the way they would you know you look back and you go oh I would change things very few few people can't say that I think at the end of the day every single parent is doing the best with what they know and that's I I really not believe there are any parents that are going to willingly harm their child of so course, I just of course. Want to make that clear. Yes, very clear. I'm not and, and judge parents who yeah. to do it. Everyone's everyone's got their own reason. Yes. 
Yes. And that's as long as it's being informed. Yes. And and parents, new parents are drowning. They don't know what they're doing. How could they, how could they know? And so when you go and you Google, or even when you ask people, you're going to get all this advice and you never know what advice to take. And it's very hard. It comes with time and it comes with experience. I think it's very hard to know when to trust your gut and when to listen yes. to somebody else. And somebody else may say, well, I had five kids and this is, this is how, exactly. look how successful they are. It's like, okay, well, I better do that. And, you know, I was, I was miserable the whole first year of having twins. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I was very lonely. I was home with them and felt very, very alone and um, didn't take them any places for fear of illness because they were uh, preemies. And, oh, and word, then exactly trying to deal with the crying at night. And it just was like, yeah, it was a really rough start. So I, I feel like you touching upon the, the guilt and the rage, which so many of my listeners who are very much like me have experienced mm-hmm. that rage. And it's like, where did this come from? I didn't think mm-hmm. I was a yeller. In fact, when you said that you can, um, as a Montessori teacher, you know, you worked with 24 students. I'm an elementary school teacher. Yes. And so I, yeah. I, I have a class <laughs> of 10 year olds. Um, and it was like, I am, and I was a babysitter when I was a teenager and I worked in daycares. Oh, I know exactly how to work with kids. Parenting is going to be so easy. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and then, then my, my, I, I'm a yeller. I'm a screamer. I'm, I'm stress eating. I'm anxious all mm. the time. What a nightmare. And so you came across something I had never heard of hand in hand parenting through this book. And when you told me the details of this, when we talked a few weeks ago, I was absolutely blown away. I, in fact, actually, I didn't tell you, there is another mother. I'd have to go search through my notes. She's going <laughs> to be on the podcast. She oh, really? is in the United States and she's also a hand in hand instructor. And when I told her that I knew you, she had, she knew who you were. <laughs> so I'm oh, amazing. To, I wonder who it was. <laughs> I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to look that up. Maybe I will while you're, while you're, t- you're chatting. So hand in hand parenting sounds perfect for a mother who is feeling guilty and full of rage, mm-hmm. especially if they're raising a, an out-of-the-box child, as I am, mm-hmm. um, because there's extra guilt and rage. It's not just about newborns and, and mm-hmm. infants. It is about connecting with your child. And I often have felt that my child was misunderstood and mm-hmm. he did not think people connected with him. So I recently had this revelation where I said, okay, if no one else is going to understand my son, then who is, it's gotta be me. Mm -hmm. I have to, that's on my shoulders and I need to make that happen. So tell us about hand in hand parenting. I know there are five tools and, um, my listeners may have no idea what this is. So break that down for us. So hand in hand parenting is basically it's, so it's an organization. It's a U.S. based organization. Um, not-for-profit organization. It was founded by Patty Whipler. I speak under correction, but I think 58 years ago. It's been around for a very long time. And oh, wow. the whole idea behind it is connecting with your child. So many parenting practices and approaches are very behavior-based. And, you know, like a well-behaved child is a child that fits in the box. I'm using inverted commas again they fit in the box. They know when to control their impulses. They know when to speak. They know how quietly to speak. 
they, um, you know, it's, and that's just not the case with most children. So hand-in-hand parenting uses five tools and it can be applied to literally any family. It doesn't matter how much money you earn. It doesn't matter what, what culture, what culture you're part of. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter how you school your children. It doesn't matter what country you're in. You can completely adjust it to your own values in your family. You can have a devout Christian family using the same tools as someone who doesn't have any kind of religious belief. You know, it's, it's that universal. And the five tools are, the first one is setting limits. And it gives you that confidence to know when to set limits for your child based on their personality your relationship and what the situation calls for. Um, Children live incredibly limited lives in terms of, you know, don't touch that, don't do this, don't speak too loudly. And it's kind of understanding where the sweet spot is. So they're setting limits. And also when to set limits in terms of preempting the fact that they need an emotional release. Sometimes you do it because you know they're gonna kick back and have a tantrum and that's what they need in that moment to release whatever is bothering them. So after setting limits, come stay listening, which is when your child does have a tantrum or does have an emotional outburst or episode, I don't call them negative emotions because every single emotion has a purpose. There's a reason for it. And you know they're, they're all survival instincts at the end of the day. So it's respecting that your child's emotions are different to yours and giving them space to have them in a, in a safe space, knowing, giving them the, the, the knowledge that no matter how you feel, I love you. My love is unconditional. I don't love you more when you're quiet or well-behaved or listening to me. I love you all the time, so much so that you are screaming at me right now, but I'm gonna sit with you and love you through it. And in doing that, cause you know, children can't self-regulate and Sensitive children take even longer to self-regulate. They need you with them to co-regulate. So it's sitting with them in those moments. But as you can imagine, that's not easy. (laughs) It's not easy every time your child has a tantrum to sit there and be a warm, you know, harbor in their stormy sea. And that's where listening partnerships come in. And a listening partnership is actually... There are no, there are not enough good words in this world to describe what a listening partnership is. It's meeting with someone in person or nowadays a lot over Zoom and, and Skype and whatever because of COVID. But you each take, you know, you decide beforehand how long it's going to be 20 minutes, half an hour, 10 minutes, sometimes even five minutes. And the person listens to you and you can talk about whatever you like. Usually it's whatever you're finding challenging in parenting right now. And the whole idea with that is for the emotions to bubble up for you so that you can let them out and kind of empty that emotional backpack we carry around constantly. Because if, if we are clogged up with our own emotions and stresses and anxieties, it's very difficult to have the space for our children to have their emotions and anxieties because they just trigger you then you kind of you know it all spills out so having this listening partnership you can do it as many times as you want in a week I have I have it once a week 
is and just whatever is stressing you like an argument you had with your spouse worries about a parent's health whatever it is you talk about it and you get it out and a lot of the time emotion does bubble up because you are in such a held space that person there's no judgment there's no advice they don't give you advice you don't interrupt they just listen to you and so you cry you laugh you do all those things that we encourage our children to do to let their feelings out and then you come out of it feeling refreshed and ready to hold space for your children so that's wow. a listening partnership that's, that's the third tool wow and then this yeah so 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 I, I see hand-in-hand -hand parenting tools as almost like a coin. On one side, there's the setting limits and stay listening, which is all to do with the more difficult emotions and you know, being, being the parent setting those boundaries because children need them. And then you have your listening partnership. And then on the other side of the coin, you have play listening and special time. Special time, I'll go into first. That's basically you set aside time with your child and you say to them for you have it you literally have a timer so that it's you know it's not like you are ending the time the time's ending objectively and you say for 20 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever it is we're going to do whatever you want and you you for that 10 minutes 20 minutes you delight in whatever your child chooses to do with you and you build up a, they build up a huge sense of safety and connection with you when you do that because you are literally being immersed in their world and a sense of trust and that's something the more regularly you do it the better and it's a very helpful tool when you know like say you're going to visit someone and they're going to be lots of limits set. you know you're going away with a family or you're at your in-laws house and there's lots of breakables and you're going to have to be like no don't do that no 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 because there are times that they are going to be put under that sort of stress lots of special time leading up to something like that they are far more likely to be okay with boundaries being set because they've they've got that kind of their, their emotional attachment has been so built up and they've got such a connection that there's almost a buy-in and then play listening is one of my favorite tools because i don't know about you but before when it came to setting boundaries or um setting limits for some reason, we think we have to be firm or stern. Otherwise, they're not going to take you seriously. Like if you don't stand in your power and say, I'm not going to let you do that, they're not going to take you seriously. But actually, setting limits with play is the most effective way to get children to actually hear you. So I'll give an example with this. I bought some biscuits cookies <laughs> the other day and they were in the pantry and my son was like I really want one and it was 20 minutes before dinner so I said oh Philip we're not going to have one now you can have one after dinner and it's not often that they defy what I've said this time he literally went into the pantry and he's like I'm getting one mom and he climbed up and he got one he's holding it and I could, in that moment, I had a choice. Do I get angry and be like, how dare you not listen to me? Give it to me now. Or do I get playful? And I was like, there's a bear in my pantry and he's just stolen my biscuit. I need to get it back. And I called his brother. I was like, John, come and help me. And now John's, Philip's all excited because it's a game. So he's running with this biscuit and we're laughing and laughing. And the whole idea behind play listening is getting laughter going and really just, because laughter is also a huge emotional release especially around feelings like embarrassment shame 
um, nervousness, anticipating something happening. So we had such a huge laugh. And he said, mom, I'm going to put the biscuit here for after dinner. You can hold a boundary without being angry or firm or stern. And it's, it's, very, it's very useful with toddlers who are going through that stage of, I want to touch, I want to feel, I want to explore. And rather than getting, you know, every time they go towards the plug being like, no, 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 don't do that. You know, you go and you say, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to let you do that. And you kiss their hand. It's not that you're letting them do it, but you're also not kind of severing that connection through this stern tone. So it's using a, a warm, light voice with setting limits. And I can quite confidently say that every single time I set a playful limit with my children, that limit sticks. I get far less kickback because a lot of the time when they when they do push boundaries it's actually not about them wanting to do that it's about them saying hey mom you know, i'm feeling a bit disconnected can you just look at me for a second here wow and if you and if you get that laughter going that's you know laughter is the quickest connection between two people if you think wow. about it wow and yes it's between a child and their parent this is amazing so those, this... are the, those are the five tools wow um, and since, since doing my intro course and feeling the change within myself and seeing the change in my family, I was like, you know, with my Montessori background and my passion for child development, I'm, you know, I, most of the books I read are books on child development. I'm a big nerd when it comes to that. Um, I, was, I was like, I have to become an instructor. This is, this is what I want to do with my life. And so I did the instructor course and loved it and learned so much. And um, yeah, it's just been the best thing, the best thing I've done in my parenting journey. It's, and it's it, helped me trust myself. Yes. And, and these, like I said, I had never heard of this. These five steps are so good. They're really speaking to me. This is something that I feel. And, and nine times out of 10, I think when my son is having a meltdown or is just really a heightened state of anger, and he's just looking mm -hmm. for connection. And I have to say, especially with a child like mine, and, and there's a lot of meltdowns, there's a lot of screaming, there's a lot of anger. How do you, what would you say to a, to a mom who, who has a kid who acts out a lot, I mean, a million times a day, how do you constantly show up for them in a lighthearted, mm -hmm. kind tone? What about, for example, if a child is being really mean to a sibling or something where mm -hmm. it, you know, how, if it's not just that they want to take the cookie, but that they are yeah. actually being really disrespectful or how would mm -hmm. you handle something like that? Often when people start using the tools, they see behavior almost get a little bit worse for a while because your child's going, okay, you're listening now. I'm going to just make sure you, you're listening. I'm also going to like let you know about the stuff I've been holding in for a long time. Um, but specific example, like say, if one of my boys is nasty to the other, understanding that your, your kids love each other they don't want to hurt people. Children are intrinsically good. They want to cooperate. They want to be kind. They can't. 
they physically can't. And so when something does happen between siblings, you know, if they're having an argument with each other, I will often just kind of let it go to see what happens. And if it starts getting heated, I'll say, oh, I'm starting to hear some unkind words. Is everything still okay with you two? You know, because if they can learn to resolve things themselves, you know, if we keep stepping in as parents and taking aside this extra resentment and guilt that comes with that, you know. But if you've got a sibling who's being nasty to their sibling, kind of unprovoked and being really hurtful, I would kind of go to them and with the, with the sibling that's kind of committing the hurt, be with them and say to other, I'm so sorry he said that to you. I'll be with you now. Okay, are you okay? Kind of check in with the other one, but be there with the child doing it because they're the ones hurting the most, if you know what I mean. I do. It's taken, it's taken, it's taken a lot for them to get to that point. And, you know, whether it's physical contact, like then you just say, I know you don't like saying that stuff to your sister. Or, you know, I find what's really helpful is if one of my sons hurts the other, I'll say, I'm sorry I didn't get here to stop you before that happened. Because at the end of the day, children under the age of seven on average, nine for, for um, sensitive children, their impulse control is completely underdeveloped. If yes. they feel angry and they're dysregulated, their body wants to kick. Yes. And it takes... It actually amazes me that they have any impulse control to hold it back at all. So if you are nearby and you can see that it's going to get physical or aggressive, it's stopping it from happening. You know, say you can see your one child's about to hit the other, you hold them by the arm and say, I'm not going to let you hurt your brother. Chances are they'll be kicked back from that and they'll get cross with you and they'll have a tantrum. But that's, that's a good tantrum to have because the feelings that are making him want to hurt or his brother or her sister or brother are the ones that need to be dealt with so that he can go back to a state of equilibrium. And for parents who have children who have frequent meltdowns, you know, constantly all day, I firstly, my heart, I, I, I'm just amazed by parents that, that show up for those kids and, and keep doing it and you are all amazing because it is so, so hard. It's so, it's so hard. And for those parents, a listening partnership will be probably the best tool for you. And also just understanding that when your child does this, he's not a bad kid. She's not a bad kid. She's not misbehaving. He's or she is just, you know, showing their emotional state. And if you can go into it knowing he's a good kid and I'm a good mom and I'm going to be here for him now, it takes a lot of that pressure off. Because a lot of the time, these things are hard to deal with because we feel like it's wrong. We feel like they shouldn't be doing that. And because they keep doing it, you're failing them in some way. But it's not the case. And you'll find that once you start using the tools and you go into it in a way like you know what, I'm on your side. I'm on your side. You're angry right now. I'm here with you. And they don't feel like you are trying to change their behavior or um, you know, put them in a box. You'll find those meltdowns become less frequent. Oh, good. So good. Yeah, it's, it's, it's 
you're speaking right to my soul. You know, one of the things (laughs) that I find, and I do this too, I'm guilty of this too, but we as, as parents seem to want to stop the negative behavior completely. So for example, if, if one child is being really hurtful to another and I, you know, remove them from the room or whatever and bring them into a different space and then they have mm-hmm. a meltdown there. Now we're trying to correct that meltdown. And yeah. it's like, when does the child get to express their feelings? If exactly. I'm constantly shutting them down, no, you can't show mm-hmm. anger this way. No, you can't scream like that. No, you can't. No, you can't. And obviously, I think the line needs to be when it involves hurting other people or themselves. 100%. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's not like there's no boundaries. Any, but. Yeah. Any kind of distraction to themselves or a, a person or, 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 or object, you know, they can't like go and bash That's something, cool. bash, yeah. smash a glass or anything like that. Yes. Right. But then, in, then, then they have to be able to express those feelings somewhere else. And I think we're yeah. constantly trying to shut them down in that way. You well, you can't do that. Well, I know you're angry, but you can't do that, and you can't do that, and you can't scream that loud, and you can't say Mm -hmm. those things. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that if I had that much anger in my body, it's like, where do I get to put that? Exactly. And the thing is, you know, we 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 constantly putting out these little fires, and it seems like you put them out in the moment, but it just becomes a bigger fire inside them that's that needs to come out at some stage. And you'll find that when you, when you say you are so angry, you know what, I'm here with you. I'm sorry, I'm sorry it's so hard right now. And you empathize and you just sit with them until they come out the other side. The more one does that, the more that they, the, more, the, the less they do it. They, they, don't, they don't have these meltdowns so much because they know that when they do, you're there. My, my, my boys, I remember, they, they say that, tantrums start happening at 18 months that's normal right my one boy started when he was seven months old he started having tantrums and I was like oh my gosh I remember googling how can you tell if your child hates you that was literally how I felt I thought he hated me mm-hmm. and I was constantly trying to make him happy make it better make it better and you not you know your intention is good, but you're not making it better for them. Oh, um, he's got so much to let out, and I let him let it out. It was tough for a while because <laughs> there was a lot that he had to tell me. But nowadays, for me, when they when they get to the point of a tantrum, it's always it's almost like a relief because I know, oh, they're gonna feel better after this. Yes. Like, it's like you know, it sounds gross, but you know, when you have one of those pimples that like are really sore and they build up and they get bigger and then they pop and it's such a relief yes. that is like they're whingy they're whiny they're bickering with their brother you try politely listening it helps a little bit but you know it's like only a tantrum that's going to fix this yeah and when it happens you're like yes <laughs> let me hold you through this my boy we'll we'll get through it yes that makes so much sense yeah. and and so here's, here's a question for you. What would you say to, to a parent whose child is really trying to go against those boundaries all the time? And you mm-hmm. feel like you're chasing, chasing those boundaries. Like, no, you're not supposed to do that. And no, I said that, you know, like, and it's constantly, it's constant. How 
it's almost like you need to reset, clean the slate Mm -hmm. and start over. I almost sometimes feel like I need to just start over in parenting my kids. So what would you say to a parent who is struggling with keeping those boundaries, but still keeping the connection between you and your child? Mm -hmm. So if it's like a toddler constantly testing boundaries, I'd be like, congrats, Congrats. you've got toddler yes (laughs) give them a yes space a lot of the time one can redirect behavior so say your child's jumping on the couch rather than stop jumping on the couch say your body wants to jump come let's go see how many times we can jump outside or if you have a trampoline let's jump on the trampoline because a a lot a lot of behavior is dysregulation manifested and you know for children who show it through movement they need movement and it sounds like a lot when I say it now but connecting to your child through play in those moments it seems like you'll just be doing that all day but if you do it you avoid okay say your child is jumping on the couch and you say please stop jumping on the couch go back to what you're doing they jump on the couch I told you to stop jumping on the couch you go back and then they carry on jumping on the couch. You say, how many times must I tell you? I'm exhausted. I'm so tired of saying this. Stop jumping on the couch. Now you are getting more dysregulated. They're getting more dysregulated. It'll probably end in a tantrum or an argument or whatever. You've not taken up 20, 30 minutes of your time, if not more, because they jumped on the couch. Where if you go, oh, you're jumping so high on that couch. Let's go outside and do a running race. Or let's see who can do the most jumps outside. That's like five, 10 minutes and it's dealt with. You know what I mean? So it's a, with a boundary pushing, it sounds counterintuitive, but a lot of play and play listening helps with that. Finding playful ways to connect and special time because the more you do that, the more connected they feel to you and there isn't as much of a need to get your attention or seek your connection through those sorts of behaviors. That is so good. That is so good. Now, do you think it's important to have uh, the the spouse, the partner, the family on board too? Do you train train your family and how they interact (laughs) with your boys? So that's an interesting one because, you know, everyone comes with their own upbringing and what they think worked for them and what didn't work for them. And for me, yes, ideally your spouse is on board with you. Uh, you, you otherwise what's going to happen like if you are someone who's parenting this way but your your husband or wife is going no when they do that I'm going to put them in timeout or I'm gonna you know smack them whatever it is that that child is just going to see you as a safe space so they're still going to have that safe space with you and they're still going to be able to deal with the feelings caused by that with you but it's it's kind of isn't so nice for their relationship with your spouse right so ideally you know I mean if your spouse does things differently and you know they don't say everything perfectly or you know it's okay it's not the end of the world because you are such a safe space for your child that it'll be dealt with either way um when it comes to family <laughs> it's yeah um children Children know that different people treat them differently. So with with extended family where your child spends time with other people, 
children learn very quickly who is uncomfortable with big emotions, who won't let it happen. And I think, you know, as long as there's no kind of really punitive boundary setting where you've got to say, listen, you can't speak to my child like that, or I won't let you smack my child, you know, because that is something some people have to face. But if it's a case of like a well-intended grandmother trying to stop your child from crying every time they're upset because they don't want them to be upset because it hurts their heart, and, you know, that sort of thing, that's okay. Because your child is going to learn very quickly. Granny's not comfortable with my tantrums. It makes her uncomfortable. So I don't feel safe letting those emotions out with her, but I'm going to let my mom hear about it when I get home. <laughs> yes. Wow. Wow. So it's just, you know, it's, it's understanding that everything is so fluid. And just because your child is following direction and compliant one week does not mean that they've reached that stage in their life where they listen to you. It's they're having a good week and there are going to be weeks that they are like the same with us. We have really horrible weeks, you know, I'm feeling down, I'm snappy, I'm grumpy. It's just seeing them as, as separate individual human beings that deserve the same respect as an adult emotionally. Yes. So good. And you said the phrase and it stuck with me, um, being comfortable with your child's big emotions. And, and I have children with big emotions and my audience does as well. And it's, it's so interesting how a lot of all of this comes down to the, the parent, you know, mm. about what's my comfort level with my child's exactly. big emotions and, and trying to tell that child to not have those big emotions is just because I'm uncomfortable with it. Not because yeah. what they're doing is is going to ruin them for their adult life. And, um, you know, they're not doomed because they're screaming. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of, well, they need to learn. They need to learn how society wants them to act. Well, no, exactly. they're still oh, children. Yeah. There is, you know, that is such a good point that you raised is that it's happened to me on more than one occasion where I go, you know, am I not kind of bubble wrapping them, parenting them like this? Am I not preparing them for the world out there where they're going to have people speaking to them in a different way or kind of putting them in a naughty chair possibly at school and things like that and am I am I doing them a disservice but actually if you look at it as I'm going to prepare them for the world they need to get used to disappointment and so I am going to be harsh when they do things wrong because that's how society sees it where's their safe space you know if you see yourself as all those horrible things are going to happen to them out in the world but they will always be able to come home and process it. Ugh. So that's, 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 that's what sat with me. Cause you know, my children, the, the boys are, I think it's got a lot to do with their, with their start to life, but they're very, very with, with new people. They are very uncertain. It takes them a very long time to bond with people. And so we had their first parent teacher conference last term and I was expecting to go in and hear that they were standoffish and aloof and they didn't contribute in class and and she said no that if a child falls over in the playground they'll be the first ones making sure they're okay whether they were there or not they rush over are you okay I'm so sorry and they'll be the ones going to the teacher to say I'm gonna fetch her a water bottle she wants some water you know things like that she, she said they're the most empathetic children and I was like I'm serious <laughs> oh. and it made I was because they they mirror 
what you the way you treat them is how they're going to go out and treat people at the end of the day yes and that's and since i had that realization that's given me such a confidence in the decisions i make and the way that i handle them yeah and you know if we are sitting and loving our children through their big feelings but also setting boundaries in terms of i'm not going to let you hit me or i'm not going to let you hurt your brother they're going to be the same with people they're going to be the friends that people come to because they feel like they're a safe space but they're also going to be able to say this is my boundary you know i'm not going to let you do that i'm not going to let you do that oh i i i'm, I'm almost speechless your what you are saying is what i feel in my gut and i'm not doing it and i want to be doing it <laughs> and, and i'm, <laughs> I'm so going to right. do it yes i'm so going to do it it's it it's just so good because if you want to create i mean it's kind of common sense really but if you want empathetic yeah. children and you want children who show up for others then you have to show up for them and that means creating 100%. a safe space and that safe space cannot be only when they are behaving, only when they're listening, yeah. only when they're um, showing kindness. It has to be all the time. And mm -hmm. I feel that, I feel that, wow. And you know, when we speak about it, yes, it seems like common sense and it seems so easy, but it's not. Yeah. Because very few people in our generation were, were raised this way. And so we've got a lot of, you know, reparenting our own inner child's and kind of healing those hurts before we can comfortably do it with our children because and a really good trick when you're having a hard time with your child say it's been a week or two and you and, and you're struggling and you can't put your finger on why you think back to yourself at that age what was happening in your life at that age so often when i ask people that oh that's when my little sister was born that's when my dad had an operation that's when my grand died that's when we moved house, you know, there's, there's always something that happened that caused a little bit of trauma. And you, it's funny, your child gets to that age and it comes up again. And it's, and it's not anything they're doing, but you're just finding it hard to parent them. Wow. So how did yeah. you know that my twins are seven? And when I was seven, my sister was born. How did you, you know serious? that? Yeah. I did it. <laughs> I swear. I, I was an only child for seven years. And then my sister was wow. born when I was seven and my, my twins are seven now. Like sure. my mind is blown. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's completely coincidental. I didn't know that at all. <laughs> That's crazy. So you sound like you have it all together and I know no one's perfect. <laughs> I'm not perfect at all. What do um, you do when you have those moments that aren't perfect? And, and I don't even like the word perfect, but let's say, when do you, what do you do when you have those moments that don't fit these five tools for hand in hand parenting? Yeah. What do you, how do those you help moments yourself? where I, those moments where I do shout or say things that I regret because it still happens because there is no such thing as a perfect parent. But as long as you've got something to strive for and at least you're trying, that's all that matters. So I am quite, you know, I, I have, I, I look after my mental health since I've come out of the postnatal depression and I started being a therapist. I um, do a lot of breath work that helps so much. I do breath work every morning. I wake up before the kids, before the family. So I have time for myself. I've learned when to say no 
do things people I'm, I'm just kind of respecting my own boundaries more and you know not explaining myself so much I make these decisions because I know it's the right decision and I'm sorry you don't agree with it but that's how it is and in those in those moments where I've done something I regret with my children the power of apology applies to kids too we forget that we think that if we apologize to our children, we're kind of going back on what we were trying to achieve. But if you get down and say, I really shouldn't have spoken to you like that. I'm so sorry. No buts, but you mm. da, 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 da. Just, I'm so sorry. I really shouldn't have done that. I'm going to try my hardest not to do that again. Ugh. And in doing that with our children, you're modeling a genuine apology. They're not hearing, say sorry, say sorry, apologize. They don't know what that looks like if you're not apologizing to them. Wow. So <laughs> pay after rupture is huge. Getting down, saying sorry. And another thing I want to touch on with that is modeling kind of self-regulation in front of your child. Mm. Something's happening and saying like last night, even the boys were bickering with each other. They're both sick. I'd had a long day with them. And they started fighting at bedtime. And I said, boys, I really want to have a good story time. I want to just go to the bathroom and take five deep breaths because I know that I'm going to feel better. I'm frustrated right now. I'll be back now. And initially, they'd be like, come on, you know, but now they're like, okay, cool. And even if they carried on bickering, I could handle it because I've now regulated myself. So it's figuring out what is what works for you in terms of self-regulation is it going outside and screaming because that's fine is it deep breaths is it a glass of water and doing that and telling your child you're doing that because you know so often you hear about these calming jars for kids and calming corners for kids and when your child's angry you say go shake this calming jar but unless you are doing it yourself they're not going to act you know basically you've got to set the example yes if yes. they see you self-regulating you're teaching them the tools you can't tell them what to do and expect them to do it if they watch you getting all pent up pent up and exploding because you're doing the exact opposite to what you're telling them to do yes again it seems yeah, like it's so, common sense but it's not always common sense yeah this is something i kind of i think i woke up one morning and i was like Oh my gosh, I just like, as I woke up, realized I can't expect them to do something that I'm not doing. Yes. Because at the end of the day, they learn through watching you. They don't learn from you telling them what to do, especially if you're contradicting yourself. Yes. I can think of yeah. so many times that I've said, you know, it sounds like you need to take a couple deep breaths and they always say no. Well, I have never, never once in almost eight years told my kids, I'm going to go take some deep breaths. Never. I've said things like yeah. I need a minute alone, but that's not self-regulation. That's, it comes across as mean, like I need a minute. Can you guys just yeah. let me have a minute? That's not, I wouldn't want my children to say to me with the hand up, mom, let me yes. have a minute. Right. That's not. Yeah. So I absolutely need to model that. And, and I, but that in first means that the parent needs to figure out how to self-regulate because exactly. not all parents know how to do that. And in fact, yeah. I'm certainly not an expert at it, 
what do I need to do? What helps me? Okay. Once I figure that out for me, it's going outside and in peace and quiet and even a, just go to the end of my driveway and back, whatever. So then I, then I need to now tell my kids, I'm going to help myself by taking a walk down the driveway and I'll be right back. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, hopefully my kid might say, I need to help myself. I'm going to take a walk, you know? And they actually pick up on it so much more quickly than we think. In terms of things to regulate, if you haven't figured out what regulates you, one, one, basically what you're wanting to do is just get yourself back into your body, get your brain regulated. And a really quick trick to do that is going outside helps a lot, but it's that five things you can see, four things you can hear, three things you can smell. No, I can't remember it. (laughs) I know that's, that's exactly what happens. It's just connecting to your senses, just getting sensorial. Like even if you go outside and just feel a leaf, smell the leaf, take some deep breaths, you kind of almost, yeah, just rebalancing yourself a little bit. Yes. It's like a reset. Yeah. Yeah. And then in terms of, in terms of like long-term things that you can do to stay in, well, to try and stay in a regulated state, you know, mindfulness, meditation, prayer for, for anyone who is religious exercise drink lots of water yeah yeah wow all, all those things that we know we should be doing but we don't always because whenever things get tough the first thing we let go of is the stuff that nourishes us oh, my <laughs> goodness everyone else this is so good i am really feeling this on a deep level <laughs> i'm so I, glad oh so good now, I think I found you on Instagram because you have amazing yes. quotes and um, really inspirational pieces. So how can my my listeners find you and connect with you? And, and I know you're an instructor. So how can they yes. get in touch with you for all of this? So my Instagram handle is at Conscious Confident Parenting. And then my website is consciousconfidentparenting.co.za and then I recommend if your listeners are based in the U.S. there are so many amazing instructors in the U.S. in terms of time zones and 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 groups and possibly connecting with parents in your own area for listening partnerships you know there are only two of us instructors in South Africa I can't even imagine having a group of people like in real life in the flesh on the same path but um, so if you go to handinhandparenting.org and in the event section, you'll see all of the upcoming um, parent starter classes, where they are, who the instructor is, whether it's live in person or if, a, if it's a call group online. And they also have amazing blogs and articles and every now and then free resources. And po- their podcast is amazing. Oh, there's a podcast? So they, they're not doing it anymore, but there are so many episodes to still listen to from when they did do it. What's it called? I'm not 100%. It's the Hand in Hand Parenting Podcast. Oh, wow. Okay. okay. Yeah. So their website's got a, a lot. And, you, and they also have a parent club where you pay a monthly subscription and you can find listening partners. They've got a Facebook group you can join. Um, 
yeah, it's an amazing, amazing, amazing organization and community. And wow, yeah, the instructors are incredible. But it's not just all the information that's so good. It's the way that you are explaining it. You know, you have a, a piece of this because yes, it's great information. It's great resources, but the way that you're explaining it is very easy to understand. And I just feel like, and your Instagram is awesome. So just the way that you're doing it, I, I hope is, you know, putting you on a higher scale here for this. This is meant for you. You're so good at it. Oh, thank you so much. That's really sweet for you to say. No, it's, it's so true. And I, anytime that I have questions about this, I'm definitely coming to you because it's just, yeah. It's yeah. just so good. And it's given me a lot to think about, especially with out-of-the-box kids. So mm -hmm. thank you so much, Kelly. This has been outstanding. I am so, <laughs> so grateful. Thank you for having here. me. Yes. And um, hopefully we um, can connect again really soon. Yes, I'd love that. Thanks for listening today. If you would like to talk with me personally, where we can chat and just get to know each other like old friends, I would love to do a discovery call with you go to my website on theharddays.com and click on schedule a call. And if you're not already subscribed to this podcast, please do so so that you get the latest when they roll out. Not to mention, please leave a review if you feel like this episode spoke to you. That way, the podcast will be shown to more mothers. And finally, you can find me on Instagram at ontheharddays with dots in between each word, or in my free Facebook community, On the Hard Days Podcast and Community. If you are feeling isolated in your parenting journey, I encourage you to reach out through any of these means so that I can connect you with your people and support you in whatever way you need.